One of the songs that we sing has the line in it, When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. One of the songs that I truly love. The first poem of Lamentations has wailed over that fact, has wailed that there was a lack of comfort and there was no help in the midst of their grief. The picture is that Jerusalem has been destroyed because of the people's sins. And we have seen in the first poem in Lamentations 1 that uh, they have called out to God and they are praying to God. And, and we observe that you can do that even if you don't know what to say. Even if the, the words are just simply Lord help or Lord see. That's all that first lamentation is, is that is the grief is so inexpressible that all that could be uttered before God is just, Lord, look at my circumstance. Look at what has happened to me. For God is the only place of comfort as God calls himself then the God of all comforts. When we come to the second poem, as here in chapter 2, we noted prior that these poems stand alone and yet begin to amplify as each poem is read. That You'll notice in this one that there is really a change of perspective and that the first one was very much about, look at my grief, look at my sorrow, there's no one to comfort, there's no one to help. And now in the second poem, we're going to notice that this is going to be laid at the feet of God. And as we read this poem in this Lamentations 2, listen to the common thread uh, that you will hear in this in this lament. And then we will talk about really some of the great messages that come from this book that help us in our time of grief and sorrow. So Lamentations chapter 2. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed us up without mercy, all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah He has brought down to the ground and dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of his enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up its palaces. He has laid in, laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of a festival. 
The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and have put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? And what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but they have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her all. This is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of Jerusalem, the wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Lord, look, look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the Lord, of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. All right. I hope that you'll get a sense that the overriding message from, and what a change from the first poem to the second poem. The first poem is all about comfort us, and we are in pain, and we are in sorrow, and this one is just simply the anger of the Lord. I even thought about calling this uh, the same title that uh, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, because that's exactly what this lamentation is describing. Notice the repetition of it. Verse 1, how the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Then the rest of verse 1, He has not remembered the, His footstool in the 
day of his anger. Verse 2, in his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. Verse 3, he has poured out his fury like fire. Verse 6, in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. Verse 21, you have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. Verse 22, on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. The repetition, it is the day of the Lord's anger, that God is angry with us and that God has done this. And so this is a very heavy poem in describing God is angry at us. God is angered by sin. And that begins very early there in verse one. You'll notice this picture when it says he is cast down from heaven to earth, the the splendor of Israel, the beauty and splendor and glory of Israel has been thrown down. And what he is depicting is the temple. Uh, in the scriptures, the Ark of the Covenant and the temple itself are, are commonly called the splendor or the glory of Israel. This is the place where God dwelled and his glory resided. And so this is what the author is looking at in this first verse by saying, in your wrath and in your anger, you threw down what, what made us glorious, which is that temple. That was where God was in the Ark of the Covenant. And so all of that that has been destroyed. And that would be very serious. For us, we don't get a good concept of why the temple was so important. But you remember we studied in the Kings and we've studied recently in the Chronicles. The temple was the place of deliverance. Remember when Solomon inaugurates that uh, temple. And we have the blessings that are being proclaimed. One of the repetitions in 1 Kings 8 is a description of all the different ways that people were going to sin. But after they sinned, if they would turn their faces and their heart back to the temple, then God in heaven would hear their prayer and would forgive them of their sin. It is repeated over and over again in 1 Kings 8. So consider what it means when you turn around and say the temple is destroyed. The splendor of Israel is gone. This is a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day that pictures that there is no hope whatsoever. The temple is gone. What are we going to do? How are we going to petition God? How are we going to turn to him? In fact, you heard in the very lamentation that there goes the sacrifices. There's no more Sabbaths. There's no more anything. We can't keep these festivals for you any longer. And so you have this weight that how are we going to come to you? How can there be deliverance? And that's what you see that verse one is is getting at when casting down from heaven to earth the the splendor of Israel that you have at the beginning of verse 1, set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. We're under a cloud. It's darkness. There's no way through. We can't see how we're going to survive this. In fact, jump down to verse 6, the very last line, and it says there, in his fierce indignation he has spurned king and priest The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, delivered in the hands 
of the enemies. Listen to the, the power of that, that. He has spurned king and priest, disowned the altar, cast aside the sanctuary. Consider the significance of king and priest have been scorned, have been set aside, that they now have been spurned and are no longer than useful. Here is a statement by the author recognizing the end of the Davidic line has now occurred. We don't have a king anymore. Temple's gone. Dark cloud over our heads. And you have spurned the king and spurned the priesthood. Friends, for Israel, that's everything. Your king line is your Davidic covenant of hope for the future. That there would always be a king and throne that was after the, the line, the lineage of David. And that you don't have a priest anymore. How are we going to find forgiveness? How are we going to be able to have atonement? All those things that we studied in Leviticus that were necessary with the whole tabernacle sacrificial system. You've now spurned the priesthood. And you've spurned the king line. We don't have these things anymore. What are we going to do? And so here is this recognition that God has left them. That God has forsaken them. And so we don't have priests. We don't have king. We don't have temple. We are doomed before you and there is no hope ahead of us. One of the things that I think is important to recognize in in this declaration, and, and the author himself declares it as well, is that they did that first. It's one of the things that I think is always interesting about how God deals with his people, that God does not just randomly say, okay, I'm done with you and I'm not going to deal with you anymore because I'm so tired of this, that, or whatever. He always points out, you were the ones that left me first. And the same thing is happening in this very day and time. Listen to Jeremiah, what he is proclaiming before the fall of this temple. He preached in Jeremiah 16. And when you tell this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them and have forsaken me and have not kept my law. And because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into the land that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor or grace. So notice what Jeremiah is told to tell the people. You're going to run around saying, why did this happen to us? Why is the temple destroyed? Why the darkness? Why is the king line cut off? Why are the priests gone? And God says, Jeremiah, here's what you tell them. It's because you forsook me. It's because you left. You wanted to serve other gods. You're welcome to serve your other gods, but you're not going to do it in this land. I'm going to send you to another land. And day and night you'll worship your gods there, but you're not going to do it here because you have forsaken me. And I love the line that he uses. In fact, when you read through Jeremiah, you will catch this repeated refrain. They're stubborn, evil hearts. Over and over again, God will say, your hearts were stubborn and wicked and evil. And that's why this is happening. Your hearts are dark. And that's why all these things have occurred. And so the people thought, 
Because they had the temple there, because they could look and see the physical structure, they believed that they were safe. The physical structure, the temple is there, and so we're going to be fine because God is there. That's the splendor of Israel, and we're going to be just fine. And you'll notice that Jeremiah goes around preaching this again and again. Jeremiah 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah's going around saying, you're going to be destroyed for your sins. You need to turn back. And the people are saying, the temple, we're fine. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we're fine. We're, we're good. We said tomorrow, our lives are okay. Our sins are okay. Our wicked ways are just fine because we have the temple of the Lord. Just a few verses later, verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. So you get a sense of what has happened during that time. That the people are looking around saying, hey, well, we have this temple, we have this physical thing. And so all of our abominations and sins are fine. And here they're still going to the temple. He says, you're going to come stand for my temple and say, oh, we're fine. We're followers of God. We're okay. And then go back out and continue to do the very same things you were doing. And what you are then getting the picture then of is that God is truly wrathful about sin. And the seriousness of sin before God. And we must never think that God is not wrathful against sin. Listen to the New Testament that says the same thing. Here's Jesus' words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And I've always found that line interesting. It remains on him. One of the things you see in John 3 is the statement is that that you are doomed because of your sins. The wrath is on you. It's not that that oh, in the future you are going to have something happen. It's resting on you right now. You need to believe in Christ and so be saved from the wrath that is due to you because of what you've done. It is resting on you at this very moment unless you believe in Christ is what Jesus was saying there. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral Moral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of God or kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Here is this picture again and again about the wrath of God against these kinds of things. And there is a danger for us to fall into the same mistake that you see the people in the days of Jeremiah doing, believing that we can point to something in our past and that is going to be sufficient enough to save us from the wrath to come. I think one of there are probably two big ones that happen to Christians. Number one, they'll look back and say, well, I was baptized and so I'm good. You know, I, I can just look back at that one event And so I'm going to be delivered. It's okay. And treat it almost like the temple of the Lord. Hey, the temple of the Lord. We're fine. We can go on in our wicked ways. We can go on in our abominations and not experience that because we know way back there I was baptized. Or perhaps even more popular is, well, I go to church. I go to church. You know, there's my talisman before God. I went to church, so everything's going to be okay, right? 
I, I, I punched in my clock and so I'm good. That's what they were doing. They're saying, well, we've got the temple and we went to the temple and so the wrath of God won't come upon us. We're going to be fine. You get a sense of why in Philippians the Apostle Paul was so strenuous in talking about, I press on, I strain forward, I don't care what happened in the past, I set all those things aside, and I keep pushing forward. Because if you don't push forward, it's lost. And that's what's happened here is the people have grown accustomed to God. God is with us. We have the temple. We're going to be fine. And they don't recognize then what is coming upon them as a, as a great warning. And so we cannot point back to some particular activity or action and go, well, because I did this one particular thing, that means everything's okay for me going forward or that I'm good today because of things in the past. It is always before God. What have you done for God today? Where is your heart for God today? Because that's the issue that he asked them. Your stubborn, wicked, evil hearts. Where are your hearts today? I don't care that you were following before. Where's your heart today? And even in the pain of this lamentation, I believe it's important to recognize in talking about the wrath of God that that is never explosive, it's never unreasonable, and it's never unexplained. That you do not have a God that just stands back and says, well, let me just barbecue him, you know, I'm just kind of sick and tired, let me just, you know, it's time, time just feel, feeling like I need to barbecue some people today, you know, just got up on the wrong side of the bed as if God, the Lord God were some kind of pagan God who just had a bad day and decided to start french frying people. God's wrath is never unexplained, it's never irrational, it is never unreasonable, it is always explained, it's never explosive, it is always clear and thoughtful. Even when we read about Nadab and Abihu or Ananias and Sapphira, it is not just simply out of the blue, there was a surprise. It is clear, it is reasonable, it is explained. And that's why we have to look at the wrath of God. And what I think we fail to consider regarding the wrath of God is we don't grasp the depth of God's restraint that has happened over and over again, historically and even today for his people. We we just don't appreciate the restraint. And that's what God is doing. That's why he pictures himself as this compassionate and long-suffering God. Is because the wrath of God is very serious against sin. It is an expression of His clear and firm displeasure against our sins. And I think unfortunately what happens is that the restraint of God, the long-suffering of God, and the patience of God is used to think, God's okay with our sins. That God in His great restraint and forbearance towards us and not doing something means, well, that means these sins are okay. That God's not going to do something about it. And that's where these people were. For all this time, through all these wicked kings and all their sinful ways, 55 years of sinful reign of Manasseh, things like that, is sinful generation after generation after generation. And God is showing restraint. And yet the people think, well, it's okay. It's going to be fine. There's nothing that's going to happen just because all of this time has gone by. And so surely there's not going to be wrath. And it reminds you of Second Peter chapter 3. 
that just because things just continue to march on and march on in time does not mean that God's wrath is not there. That this is a picture of God's restraint, it is a picture of God's compassion, it is a picture of God's long suffering. But there will be a time when God's restraint will finally end. And here you see that happen in Lamentations. That for hundreds of years, here's God with great restraint, long-suffering, compassion, calling for His people to turn. But there's a time where that finally ends. And then time for God to judge. So the reason why you see the writer of Hebrews being very clear about that in Hebrews 10.26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Two verses later, he says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. He's a consuming fire. And so here is this picture of God. And as much as we must impress upon people the compassion of God and the long-suffering of God and the patience of God, we cannot consider that compassion as a license that, well, that means we're okay. That the wrath of God has been averted and he doesn't care about my personal sins or the sins of us as a congregation or the sins of a nation or the sins of a people because they continued to live. It's not the case. He is a compassionate God. And that's what the writer of Lamentations really puts his finger on there in verse 17. When the writer, here he is speaking to God and saying, look at what has happened. The splendor of Israel is God. Look at the children that are in the streets. Look at the women that are dying. But verse 17, he says, the Lord has done what he has purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. The, the, the writer of Lamentations says, you know what I'm looking at? As much as it is appalling to me to see the death everywhere and to see the wrath of God on display, he says, you know what? God said that was going to happen a long time ago. He could go right back to Deuteronomy and say, that's exactly what God said would happen because of sins. And that's what he does in verse 17. He doesn't say here, I can't believe this happened. This was really a blind sight. He said, God said that a long time ago. He said that was going to happen. And God keeps His word. He keeps His promises. He does as He has purposed. And so God said judgment was going to come on this kind of behavior, but the people rejected God's warning. They didn't listen to the warnings about the wrath of God. They didn't listen to the curses. They didn't believe that God was going to do something about their sins. And now finally their judgment had come. And God did exactly as he said he was going to do. Every single word to the detail of Deuteronomy is fulfilled in the details that we read about in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. It is a revealing of God's anger. Listen to what the people had had said in their hearts, in their minds. Here's what Jeremiah records in Jeremiah 18, 11. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Here's the message in Jeremiah. I am preparing disaster for you because of your sins. So turn before it's too late. Here's what the people say. But they say, that is in vain. 
we will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. (laughs) We will do what we want to do, Jeremiah. I don't care that the Lord has promised that there is a judgment and a disaster that is coming on sins. We will live how we want to live. We will do what we want to do. We will walk in our ways. There's no reason for us to turn and repent, Jeremiah, is what they say. And it is a grave warning that we must never think that God is not going to execute judgment. That the patience and long-suffering and restraint of God must never be confused For the fact that God will bring his judgment at its proper time. And so God disaster was said disaster was coming. The people said "Ah, there's no point. There's no point in changing our ways. And they chose to follow their own stubborn hearts. You know, the New Testament does the exact same thing in very same words, very same messages to us. Lest we think, oh, we're in the Old Testament. God's completely different now. Romans chapter two, verse five. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed that almost sounds like jeremiah's very words is the apostle paul who is writing to the romans and saying the very same thing wrath is stored up because of your stubborn hearts your hard and penitent hearts peter said the same thing first second peter 3 verse 7 but by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly And Peter made the note. People are going to look around and think, well, it's just been such a long time. These things aren't going to happen. You know, where is this coming? It's not going to take place. And Peter says, yes, it is. It most certainly is. These things are being kept and are being preserved for fire until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Don't ever forget the Apostle Paul as well. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. These are the words and the promises of God, the same messages that were given in the days to Israel and to Judah, these messages of God will come in judgment for sins. The New Testament prepares us for that and tells us the very same thing. There is a day of judgment. There is a day of wrath. And yet those things can be avoided. And that's where we're going to look for hope and grief then as we continue forward in this. So what are we supposed to do? Look at what the writer here of Lamentations does in verse 18. Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 18. He says there, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall, the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. And your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Notice what he tells them to do. Here's what needs to happen. Let your tears flow. This is supposed to be the response to sin. We have spent an awful lot of time in our Sunday morning Bible study about what is your response to sin? Because that is everything before God. And here is Jeremiah in this lamentation describing our sins are before us and God's wrath has come down. What is the response that needs to happen in the face of sin? 
He gives it right here. Let your tears flow. Exhaust every effort and plea before God. Call out to Him and cry out to Him over your sins and over your wicked ways. That this is exactly what God desires. That He wants our broken hearts. He wants the contrite heart. He wants humbled hearts that in the face of sin and they look at what they've done before a holy God and they are crushed by those sins. That they are not people who look at sin and go, eh, it's a it's thing, who cares? That's what these people had done in Lamentations. They looked at their sins and they shrugged it off and goes, eh, it doesn't matter. The wrath of God will not come. It is of no consequence. We will continue to do what we want to do. That God desires a people who are broken by sin, who are crushed by their behaviors, who see their sinful ways and are humbled by them and crushed by them to such a degree that they are crying out to God, that they are pleading to God for forgiveness, that he uses the picture in verse verse 17, that their eyes are streaming like a torrent day and night. May we never grow accustomed to sin. And may we never become unashamed of our sinful ways that every sin breaks our heart and that every failure and every caving into temptation causes us to run quickly back to God desiring for our forgiveness and desiring the grace and the mercy of God and the hope in that is how amazing is it that God allows us to articulate these kinds of pleads to God. That God allows us, in fact commands us, to take these kinds of sorrows, to take our grief, even grief that's over sin, even dealing with the consequences that is deserved because of our sinful behavior. God says, I want you to bring those up to me. I want you to cry out to me and plead to me day and night that, that God desires that. So often we have the, the wrong response to sin that, oh, I'm going to hide those things. I'm not going to talk to God about those things as if he doesn't know and if he doesn't see. And if I don't say anything about it and I don't confess those sins, then it's all going to be covered over and it's all okay. And God is saying, no, just just open those things up to me, confess those sins, tell me those sins, plead to me, repent to me, call out to me, cry to me, do those very things. Let me hear your heart cry out before God. That is what God desires and how awesome it is that God wants to hear those things. And when we bring our heart broken before God with that plead, God says he forgives. That God receives that and he hears our shortcomings and failures and sins and sorrows and griefs. And he responds to that very thing. Notice that we see that very picture in, in 1 Peter 5. I love how Peter words this. 1 Peter 5 verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I hope that if you mark in your Bible, would you underline that statement where he says, because he cares for you and really let that weigh on you as sinful as we are and as ruined as we are, as sinful as we can be in our thoughts and minds and actions. He says, humble yourself 
And at the proper time, God will exalt you because he cares for you. He wants us to take these things to him. I I read this online that somebody wrote, and I I thought it just really accurately represented uh, a, a truth that I think Lamentations and Peter are getting at, where the writer just simply said, you know, on your worst day, God does not love you any less, and on your best day, God does not love you anymore. You know, so often we work before God in that kind of aspect that, oh, it was a really bad day. Now God hates me. No, he doesn't. Oh, and I'm really, God really loves me today because I did really good today. Not any more than he did yesterday. <laughs> Having a sense that God just wants that broken heart, just to, that, that broken heart, and he desires us to come to him. Final passage is Psalm 77, which, which gives this rhetorical question about the compassion of God that you answered all of these rhetorical questions in a resounding no. Psalm 77, verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever? And, and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he shut his, has he in his anger shut up his compassion? And the answer to all those things is no. Even in all of his anger, he hasn't shut up his compassion. He has not forgotten to be gracious. His steadfast love hasn't, hasn't ceased. What a great picture it is that, that God is still compassionate, even though God's anger is right. And that's what this, this uh, lamentation is saying. As this one who laments this is recognizing that God's anger is right and it is it is due upon us. And yet a recognition that God is compassionate. And so here he is writing down and saying, you know, it's because of our sins. We listen to these false prophets. We listen to these lies. We went our own ways. We had stubborn, evil hearts. And yet he is still crying out on the compassion of God. That's what happens in verse at the very end. Verses 20 to 22 of Lamentations chapter 2. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Look at us, Lord, even with all of our sins and even all that we've done. Look at what has happened to us. Look at the consequences that we are dealing with because of our sins. He's describing there the the dust in the streets lie, the young and the old, the priest and the prophet were slain in the very sanctuary. He's going through all these things and here he is saying, but, but Lord, look at what's happened because I know that you are a compassionate God. I know that you'll respond to these things. And that's why verses 17 and 18 is he's lifting up his hands before God and praying and asking for God to intervene in your trouble and in your pain in your grief and in your sins let your heart be poured out like water before god in his very presence and it is a reminder to us that even in the depth of sin and even in the the pit of despair that we are called repeatedly to be persistent in prayer that we will take these pleas always before God, to use prayer as an avenue to get back to God, to pray our grief before God, and to never stop doing that. You've sinned today, take that to God. Be persistent in that thing. Talk to God about why do I continue to fall in these sinful things and these these actions or these traits, these various things that are a temptation to me. Lord, help me through this. Strengthen me in these things. Take these things constantly to God. Tell God what is happening. For God is a God of compassion who loves His people and desires to respond to those who turn to Him. Every time... 
that we see throughout the history of Israel, it wasn't the sins, it was the response. When the people no longer cared about their sins, God brought judgment. But when they sinned and turned back to God, God always responded to that. And you see such great examples of people who made those errors, like a Hezekiah, like a David, who in their sin, now they turn their heart back to God and God would receive that. And God has not changed for us in that. Take your sins to God, for God is a God of compassion. But do not be complacent with those sins that God wants and desires that broken heart every time we fall short. For God's wrath is real against sin and it is a great displeasure before our God when we fall short. But how amazing it is that we have a merciful God who takes us back, not because we can live a perfect life this day forward, but simply because we are broken by our sins. He takes that heart and forgives what, how undeserving we are to have a God who will take us back not because we're going to do so wonderfully in the future but just because we're so wrecked by sin and he sees the broken heart and receives us back that's our invitation to you tonight is to be broken by your sin to recognize that there is a judgment that there is a final reckoning that God will deal with sin in the end That God has promised that all sins will be dealt with. That we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The books will be opened. All the deeds will be put before Him. And we will be judged for what we've done. But there is a way for that wrath to be avoided. That wrath is certain and that wrath is promised. Just as He had promised to Israel regarding Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. He's promised again there is a judgment over the earth. But the wrath can be avoided. If we would be broken by our sins, if we would have a heart that desires to turn away from sin, a heart that desires to serve the Lord and obey Him with all of our heart. And though we fall short, it is our great desire and greatest effort and greatest hope to be pleasing to our God. That is the heart that God wants. Will you respond to that tonight? Turn away from your sins. Confess Jesus to be the Son of God who died for your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Have those sins washed away. Become a child of His. And walk before Him faithfully, confessing those sins when you've fallen short. That's what makes 1 John chapter 1 so beautiful. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive you of all your sins. It is the heart that refuses to confess that wrath falls. Will you come to Him this night while we stand and while we sing?